This is the Visible Hand, Special Job Market Edition. My name is Jordi Blanes Vidal. My guest today is Riley Lee, who is a PhD student and job market candidate at Duke University. Today we're going to talk about his job market paper, Administrative Burden and Consolidation in Healthcare, Evidence from Medicare Contractor Transitions. Riley, welcome to the podcast. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Riley, can you start by telling us what the question in your paper is? Sure. The kind of motivating question is, what are the impacts of administrative burdens in the U.S. healthcare system? Um, and then sort of the maybe more empirically implemented question is understanding how provider practices respond to changes in the claim denial rates uh, that they're exposed to. What is an administrative burden? Sure. So in the healthcare system, you can think of an administrative burden as basically anything that's not uh, clinical care, anything that's not caring for patients. So this is going to take a number of different forms. This can be largely paperwork costs, documentation, uh, supporting evidence for the diagnoses that patients are diagnosed with and that the and the procedures that are rendered to patients. Um, but they can also take sort of other forms, including having to go and ask insurers for permission before performing a procedure. Uh, and more broadly, it can relate to sort of the human inputs that go into non-clinical care. This can be administrators. This can be uh, taking nurse and doctor time away from patient care to focus on sort of administrative and billing practices. So there really is sort of a, a broad swath of things that are administrative burdens uh, in the healthcare system. Let me say a couple of things about that. The first one is that you start the paper by saying that a quarter of the $4 trillion of annual healthcare spending in the United States goes to administrative costs. I knew that these administrative costs were high, but I was really not expecting that the number would be $1 trillion per year. This is equivalent to the overall cost of the Iraq war or, you know, something along these lines. It's an incredibly high number. The second thing that I wanted to say is that I think that this is a great paper at tackling one of these questions in organizational economics. I know that you come from more like a you know health economics tradition, but in organizational economics, which is just the, the cost of bureaucracy. Typically, we tend to think that as firms become bigger, there are a lot of, you know, rigidities in the system, a lot of bureaucracy, but measuring this in practice is really hard. This is a really nice setting in which you are able to measure this and study the effects of this. Can you tell us what is the previous work on this effect of administrative costs in the U.S. Uh, healthcare system prior to your paper? What, what type of studies have been done? Of course. So most of the studies on administrative burdens in the U.S. healthcare system kind of focus on this quantification exercise that, as you mentioned, is, is quite difficult to do. And so kind of the estimates of the total administrative costs uh, to the system they, you know, they are generally around 20, 25%, about a trillion dollars, you know, generally a fifth to a third. And these sorts of uh, studies can be using sort of accounting and financial documents on the part of the various actors in the U.S. healthcare system, national accounts data, um, things like that, as well as focusing on sort of more narrow settings like surveying doctors and nurses and asking, you know, how much time do you spend caring for patients versus uh, engaging in administrative activities? So sort of we know that the costs are high, but there's been sort of surprisingly little work looking at how this impacts the way that care is rendered and the way that sort of markets are structured, you know, what the effects of these administrative burdens are. And so most of the research that's tried to tackle this question has focused on sort of very salient and narrowly tailored burdens that pop up in various sort of smaller areas of healthcare. So one big example of this is, is a form of administrative burden called prior authorization, wherein doctors need to go to the insurer and say, hey, this is what I'm planning to do. Uh, can we get sort of permission before we render this care that you're going to pay for it? Uh, and so this sort of research and sort of similar, very highly salient burdens has tended to find that these burdens do quite a good job of altering uh, physician and provider behavior to save quite a bit of money. 
generally without sort of strong evidence of adverse consequences for patients. It seems like these burdens are achieving their goal of kind of reducing spending and helping it the medical care be targeted to patients for whom it's it's much more effective uh, than average. But, you know, that kind of leaves out the question of the sort of more general and less less specific, less targeted administrative burden that's going to compose much more of that sort of trillion dollar number uh, that you were just just discussing. Ones where, uh, you know, it's not clear how much documentation you need, how much staff time you need to devote to this, uh, rather than sort of these super narrowly tailored burdens. So, so let me repeat or, or, or summarize what you said just now and interpret it. Essentially, you said mostly it's descriptive work trying to get uh, the actual number or, or share of the resources or the time that are devoted to this administration. If we expect that these administrative costs have like a direct cost of inefficiency, that's bad. What you are saying is what has not been studied is whether there are indirect costs or benefits. That is whether the quality of the healthcare provided goes up or down as a result of this. The only studies that we have are looking at the effects of relatively small or narrowly targeted type of burdens, but not the broad type of burden, the overall totality of the cost, which is what you are going to study here. How do you get to a single variable that captures the overall administrative burden let's say, a medical practice or a hospital has to undertake? That's right. So I focus on the share of claims that are denied by insurers. So when you go to the doctor, at least in the U.S., the doctor renders some care to you, gives you some diagnoses, performs some procedures, whatever it is. And then in order to be reimbursed for this care by your insurer, the doctor must submit what's called a medical claim uh, that details all of this information and essentially requests to be paid for the services that were rendered. In some sense, you can think of this as sending a bill to your uh, insurer. And then the insurer judges whether or not to pay this bill. And oftentimes what will happen is that the insurer and the doctor will disagree about you know, what exactly was rendered, whether that was justifiable, whether that accords with the rules of the sort of incomplete contract that the uh, healthcare provider and the insurer have. And if this claim is, is denied, that means that the insurer declines to, to make payment for the care that was rendered. And this I use as sort of a proxy for the overall administrative burden that providers are exposed to. I do this for two reasons. The first is that uh, these claim denials are directly quite costly in the sense that when a claim is initially denied, the medical practice sort of has the opportunity to go back and forth with the insurer to try and sort of work out an agreement to get at least some or all of this, all of this paid. Um, and so this is, is very costly. You know, existing research shows that uh, lots of times doctor's offices will sort of give up on, on these resubmissions because they, they are so costly in terms of effort to go through. As well, this represents a large sort of financial impact on, on providers with uh, up to you know, $54 billion of claims being challenged in this process every year. Um, but sort of more broadly, they represent a good measure for understanding the sort of entire billing apparatus, which is geared towards avoiding these claim denials. Uh, if you think of the sort of uh, investments that medical practices make in administrative uh, sort of costs, things like hiring administrative staff, like uh, coders and scribes, things like uh, adopting electronic health records or other kind of billing softwares, they're really all geared towards avoiding these claim denials and ensuring that the practice is paid as much as it can be for the care that it renders. So I am very sympathetic to the proxy that you are using. Uh, obviously, administrative burdens is a very broad, abstract, elusive type of concept. Whenever we try to make that concept more specific, because we need to measure it in our data set somehow, there is going to be always a little bit that is lost. And I think that intuitively, it will make sense that the claim denial rate is a measure of this. But let me give you a situation in which it might not be. So you can maybe think of this in terms of differentiation between mean and variance. So imagine a system in which 
there is an enormous handbook of things that I need to do in order to get my claim approved. But as long as I fulfill every one of these things, there's not going to be uncertainty about it because the company that is in charge of approving my claim works perfectly, everything is super clear. Obviously, I need to hire a lot of scribes and coders and this. So the burden is very high, but the claim denial rate will be low because there is very little sand in the gears of the, of the system. Alternatively, there is very little guidance. There are essentially no rules, but the company that is in charge of approving is really terrible. It hires people who, this is the US, or barely speak English, or a lot of the paper you know, gets misplaced. There, the claim denial rate is going to be higher, but there is nothing I can do as a medical practice in order to improve it. Therefore, the burden on my side will be really minor. This will be not great for your paper, right? Like what we believe is that what I'm describing is not an accurate representation of how they work, that the two things kind of go together, the mean and variance uh, go together. When, when the mean of burdens is high, there is also going to be out of scope for misinterpretations, uncertainty, and so on. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, there's sort of these two ways of thinking of administrative burden. One is what you might think of as tough but known of, I have to sort of you know overcome all of these hurdles, but I know that if I do it, then I'm going to sort of, in, in my context, get the claim paid. There's also the sort of uh, other extreme, which is it's all completely uncertain and I throw up my hands and, you know, it, it's very bad and costly and uncertain, but there's really not much that I can do about it. And you're right that with claim denials as a measure, I'm sort of lumping both of these together and saying, you know, the way that the U.S. healthcare system tends to work is one that merges both these sort of tough but known, as well as uncertain administrative burdens into one. And I think this makes a lot of sense when we think of claim denials. So uh, there are sort of known rules about what types of care will or won't be reimbursed, sort of how claims are meant to be submitted. Uh, but there is significant uncertainty around whether any given claim will sort of be judged to meet these standards. Uh, you know, lots of the reasons for rejection are somewhat arbitrary in the sense that you can't, you can, you know, try to make investments and effort in making a, a payment more probable, but it's going to be tough to sort of ensure that a claim is going to be paid by 100%. So sort of the top claim denial reasons tend to be sort of administrative things that can be somewhat subjective like whether or not the, the claim is fully legible and whether the documentation that was submitted is supportive of the care that was rendered. And so both of these sort of have some probabilistic or arbitrariness to whether the insurer is going to judge that these standards have been met, but that still leaves room for investments on the part of medical practices to try and overcome these burdens uh, and, and make a payment more likely. We are talking so far about the U.S. system, but your uh, paper is actually about a subset of the U.S. system, which is Medicare. Can you tell us how Medicare works and who is it in charge of approving or denying these claims and how did that change over time? Sure. So Medicare is the publicly funded insurance system for generally the aged uh, and disabled. It's the largest of single insurance plan in the United States. Uh, and I study what is called traditional Medicare, uh, which is uh, generally a fee-for-service system uh, that is thought to be basically the most government-run insurance system in, in the United States. And so the federal government sort of sets all of the high-level standards of this insurance uh, system. Uh, it sets all of the prices, all of the sort of benefit plan uh, structure, but the day-to-day -day administrative operation is carried out by privately owned contractors called Medicare administrative contractors. Uh, and these contractors are in charge of processing the claims that are submitted uh, to Medicare on behalf of beneficiaries. So they're the ones who are making these judgments about whether or not to pay out each claim uh, that's submitted. Uh, and each of these contractors has a regional jurisdiction to where all of the doctors that bill Medicare in their region have to send their claims to this contractor. 
Uh, and over time, the jurisdictions, the boundaries of these jurisdictions uh, has changed. So my data run from 1999 to 2017. And during this time period, the Medicare system transitioned from having, uh, having 26 different contractors operating in 58 uh, jurisdictions that lit- uh, generally followed uh, state boundaries, but in some cases were subsets of states. And they reduced those, the number of jurisdictions over time, such that by the end of my sample, there were only eight contractors operating in 12 jurisdictions uh, that were generally more regional in nature with multiple states sort of uh, being lumped together. My head is exploding, which is appropriate you know, for a paper on administrative burdens. L- let me think of this from the perspective of a doctor. So I am a doctor. A Medicare patient comes through my door. I do something. Okay, let's imagine that this is not distorted or anything. I do something to, to the patient. Now I want to get this reimbursed. I don't go to Medicare. Presumably the, the patient qualifies for Medicare, but I don't go to the federal government. I instead go to one of these uh, Medicare administrative contractors. Not to any. I have to go to specifically the one who is in charge of my geographical area. And you are saying that if I, as a doctor, remain in the same practice over time, the actual contractor has changed because over time, some contractors have left the market, others have come, and the number of areas has been merging or splitting over time such that I was dealing with some people before, now I have to deal with other people. This is the variation that you are going to study in uh, exploiting the paper. That's exactly right. While sort of all of the Medicare sort of national things can sort of stay the same. The idea of Medicare, the sorts of patients that you're treating that are on Medicare, the sorts of benefit designs, uh, the general regulations around what sorts of things Medicare covers or not, uh, those are going to be sort of constant across these contractors. And so it's very convenient for me that uh, these doctors are going to be exposed or have been exposed to different contractors, which are able to impose different levels of administrative burden uh, insofar as they review these claims with different levels of stringency. That's correct. So the previous contractor would like, uh, you know, ignore the fact that my handwriting was really bad and still approve the claim or that the documentation was not perfect in every time, but the new contractor is much more stringent, so now I have to hire an extra secretary to help me with this. That's, That's the variation in the paper. That's exactly right. What is the data? So the data that I use come from Medicare. So I'm primarily analyzing the claims that are submitted uh, to Medicare. So my data run from 1999 to 2017, and they're in what is called the 20% carrier file uh, for those who are very familiar with Medicare claims. And that means that I observe 100% of the claims that are submitted to Medicare on behalf of a 20% random sample of beneficiaries. And by focusing on the carrier file, this means that I'm looking at uh, Part B claims, which are uh, physician services, sort of outpatient claims uh, for care that are rendered uh, by doctors or other healthcare providers. And the first objective of the paper is to document that indeed there are some contractors that are more stringent than others as proxied by the claim denial rate. Of course, the claim denial rate could be very high because the doctors in the area are terrible at keeping the documentation, right? So you want to isolate the two effects. How do you do that? So the way that I separate sort of the administrator invariant claim denial rate from the portion that is attributable to the identity of the administrator is using exactly that variation that we were just discussing. That over time, I see the same providers treating roughly the same patients in the same markets being exposed to different administrators because of changes in the jurisdictions of these contracts. And so what this allows me to do is separate the contribution to the denial rate that comes from Uh, changes uh, either over time that happen nationally or differences that are invariant to the identity of the administrator in different locations, right? The culture of uh, billing or medical practice may just be different in different parts of the country. And so I'm able to isolate the contribution of these administrators by seeing how the claim denial rate changes when a new administrator is introduced to an area. So panel of jurisdictions and months, that is you're putting together every doctor that is in the same geographical area. That's a jurisdiction, right? That's exactly right. Then standard jurisdiction fixed effect, month fixed effect. 
and then just a dummy for the contractor that happens to be like dealing with that jurisdiction on that month, right? And then from that, you end up with a, a set of contractor fixed effects. You can do an F-test, see that they are strongly statistically significant. So that seems to be indicating there that contractors matter. You also do a stacked difference in difference model. I think that it is when you deal with like the leads and lags type of estimation, why do you need this uh, relatively recent uh, stacked defensive model? What are the problems with the standard panel data set that I just described that this stacked defensive model solves? Sure. So, you know, one reason I want to use this sort of dynamic difference in differences estimator as opposed to just using the sort of static differences uh, that you just discussed uh, is that it's important to first sort of rule out that uh, the differences that I'm estimating, that I'm detecting, rule out that those could be caused by sort of slow-moving nonlinear trends in denial rates that are not attributable to uh, the identity of the administrator. And so by using these dynamic difference in differences uh, techniques, I'm able to zoom in on the windows around these transitions uh, to make sure that I'm not just detecting slow-moving trends, but there is a discrete change in the denial rate following a change in these administrators. Now, why I need to use the stacked regression uh, estimator in particular largely is because I'm not looking at sort of single treatment events uh, that are permanent, right? So uh, the traditional sort of difference in difference two-way fixed effects type estimators rely on the fact that once a unit is treated, uh, that it's sort of treated for all time, and that that's not going to, to change uh, after some period of time. Where in my context, I do see single jurisdictions transitioning between multiple administrators. And so using the stacked regression estimator allows me to uh, have each of these jurisdictions show up as a treated jurisdiction more than once as well as allows me to sort of explicitly pair it with jurisdictions that at the same time were not transitioning, uh, even if sort of those same jurisdictions would transition at different points, either in the future or the past. The elephant in the room of what we're discussing is, of course, what the threat to identification is. The, the whole point that you need the leads and lags is to, you know, make sure that, as you mentioned, there are no trends. One thing that will be worrying is if the federal government says there are these doctors in this jurisdiction that are terrible at keeping records. So now we are, let's just take this other contractor here who's super stringent or super lenient and let's put the new contractor in charge. That will be a problem for you, right? And the like dynamic or the leads and lags regression will be a way of seeing that the, the trend in the claim denial rates cannot predict the shock received by a jurisdiction in terms of the contractor that the jurisdiction will be receiving. In some sense, that, that's exactly right. Um, you know, the, the key identifying assumption here is that, you know, were the contractor not to change or not to change to the contractor that I observe taking over that jurisdiction, that the trends in the denial rate would be parallel relative to those in other jurisdictions that are not transitioning at the same time. And so were the federal government to sort of assign jurisdictions to contractors that would uh, help them achieve their goals and was also taking other actions to uh, sort of attempt to rein in spending in those jurisdictions or, or improve documentation or sort of other efforts uh, that may be related to this change in administrator, then yes, that would be a, a threat to the, the identification that I see here because the change in the denial rate would not just be attributable to the identity of the contractor, but to sort of these other efforts. Now, it's not perfect, you know, it's not so worrying if the government were to uh, sort of assign jurisdictions to administrators for reasons that aren't completely random. Um, because really all I need to understand how providers react to changes in their administrative burden is to be able to recover an average treatment effect on the treated, right? I just need the contractor to change the denial rate in those jurisdictions in which it is assigned. Now, that would, now, if that were the case, then that would affect, in some sense, the sort of generalizability of the uh, administrator fixed effects that I'm capturing. Um, but for understanding how providers respond to changes in their administrative burden, 
uh, it would be just fine. And you know, finally, I should emphasize that I don't really see any evidence that this is the case. And in understanding the institutions here, it seems like uh, the federal government in assigning these contractors really isn't thinking about the level of administrative burdens that they impose or you know, any sort of match value with the jurisdictions uh, that they're assigned to. Uh, so the sort of things that they're graded on are generally sort of purely administrative customer service type things like how well they return phone calls, you know, how nice their website is, how quickly they respond to FOIA requests, rather than any sort of actuarial or financial impacts on administrative burdens in healthcare spending. Can you describe now the visual evidence of this dynamic you know, or leads and lags regression? Sure. So when I estimate this dynamic difference in differences, estimator of the change in the denial rate as providers transition uh, between administrators, if I compare a jurisdiction that transitions to one that does not transition at the same time, uh, then what I see is after no differential pretrends in the denial rate, in the first month of transition, there's a large spike in the share of claims that get denied. Over the next few months, this denial rate sort of then falling and settling to a level that's in accordance with the estimated impact of the new incoming administrator. So, for example, if the transition is from a lower to a higher denial administrator, then I see a large spike in the denial rate before then settling at a still elevated level. Uh, whereas if the transition is from a higher administrative burden to a lower administrative burden administrator, then I still see a, a spike in the denial rate immediately upon transition, but then it uh, subsequently settles at a much lower level than before. And so I can also sort of, in addition to comparing these jurisdictions that transition between administrators to those that don't transition at the same time, implement a triple differences uh, estimator that compares not just jurisdictions that do to those that do not transition, but differences uh, between these jurisdictions that transition to higher or lower administrative burden or denial rate uh, administrators. And so when I do that, I see, uh, again, no differential pretrends in the denial rate between these jurisdictions that transition to higher or lower denial administrators before uh, an immediate and discrete jump of about 1, 1.2 percentage points in the month of transition, uh, and then remaining at that level thereafter. Maybe you only care in this type of exercise about distinguishing qualitatively or discreetly uh, high and low denial rates administrators. Maybe you're not so interested in like estimating type of like elasticities or, or something like this. But because this is a paper that, especially later on in our conversation, will make so much out of the endogenous response of uh, these uh, healthcare providers uh, to the administrative burdens. I was wondering whether these fixed effects are attenuated. And let me give you here the way that I, I, I may think. So imagine, imagine that such an endogenous response exists and there are two types of contractors. They are very lenient and they very stringent, but these types are perfectly observable. And there is a technology that the medical practice can buy which immediately will lead to the adaptation from the more lean to the more stringent. Then, because of the way that you are estimating and these differences through the mobility of doctors or jurisdictions across contractors, our estimated effect will be zero, right? Because uh, we will not expect that the denial rate uh, varies at all in this scenario that I just gave you. But in fact, it does because the um, endogenous response was so fast that it was not picked up in the data, even though the underlying propensity to, den to deny was differing across contractors. Yes, that's exactly right. The denial rate that is observed is an equilibrium object, right? It depends not only on the administrative burdens that are imposed by the administrator, but also how providers respond. And so you're exactly right that my estimates sort of quantitatively of how different each of these contractors are in terms of the administrative burdens that they impose may be attenuated because I'm seeing differences in the realized denial rate. 
Now, that's sort of feeds into a few things that uh, we'll talk about sort of later in, in this paper, which is why I want to model this endogenous response on the part of providers to understand how changing the administrative burden uh, affects their behavior and affects sort of other equilibrium outcomes like spending, uh, like entry and exit decisions. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the you know, ingredients of the model, the basic ideas and predictions behind this model that you have? Sure. So the basic idea is that providers are able to invest in billing technology and billing effort in order to sort of combat these administrative burdens. Um, that providers are able to invest in technologies like hiring additional staff, adopting electronic health records or other billing technologies that serves to do two things. The first is that it lowers the probability of a denial or increases the probability that a given claim is going to be paid in full. The other thing that this investment is going to do is it's going to allow the provider to extract greater charges to bill more aggressively, uh, what is often called upcoding uh, in healthcare. And so this investment is going to also allow them to essentially bill for more or ask for more uh, in reimbursement. And this investment is going to come at some cost. You know, there's no free lunch. And so I'm going to model this cost as having a large fixed cost component, which is going to then determine how much these providers are able to invest. This will also determine how provider practices are able to spread the cost of investment across their larger or smaller patient volume. So the prediction that if there is a fixed cost, larger firms will be more likely to leverage that cost over a higher number of units that they produce, that's obviously like automatic. It is also automatic, the prediction that increasing administrative costs will lower profits and that will lead to the exit of the smaller practices. The, the other prediction that you have is that a larger administrative burden will cause investments to increase or decrease, but it will cause charges to move in the same direction. And this is because this uh, investment in technology has this dual effect of allowing you to get a higher proportion of your claims reimbursed, but also it has this upcoding, you know, allow you to claim more things that you were mentioning. Like that's a direct result from this assumption, uh, the prediction, but it's like a, a distinctive uh, prediction of this type of model. You then have reduced form evidence on these predictions. What do you find? Yes, so I find evidence that providers increase their level of investment in response to increases in administrative burden. Uh, so following a transition to a contractor that denies more claims, I find that providers increase their uh, adoption of electronic health records, one important form of uh, billing technology. Uh, and like predicted by the model, I see that the charges that they submit to Medicare also increase, uh, which is indicative to me of increased uh, investment in response to this increase in administrative burden. And like you mentioned, I also have reduced form evidence of the sort of fixed cost component being an important part of these uh, of these investments. Uh, so I see that transitions are more disruptive for smaller providers rather than larger providers. Uh, and I see that in, uh, in the cross-section that smaller provider practices see many fewer of their claims being denied than larger practices. Two results that are consistent with larger practices having a larger stock of investment in this billing technology and billing effort. Uh, and then finally, I also see evidence that these increases in administrative burden uh, reduce firm profits, and in particular, reduce firm profits for smaller firms that are going to be making lesser profits uh, in the model uh, and so be closer to the threshold for exit. So I see that following these transitions, that the number of active providers in the market seems to decrease, and this is largely driven by solo practitioners such that the average size of practices remaining in the market after a transition to a higher denial administrator uh, increases. Let me make uh, a couple of comments about the evidence that you just mentioned. The first one is that the interpretation of whether these electronic health records are a good thing or a bad thing is very different in this paper as opposed to previous papers, right? So typically, Investment in technology in order to be able to track the conditions, comorbidities, you know, the diseases of uh, different patients, investments in information and communication technology. 
that's supposed to be a good thing. In fact, you mentioned in the paper that there is that the federal government had a program that was not well targeted or anything, but that was paying money to healthcare providers in order to ease the transition to electronic health records. So in terms of, you know, it's fine. It's not, it's, it's not a problem. The prediction is what it is. But in terms of interpreting later on whether these whole transitions led to an increase or decrease in society's welfare, you know, we need to take that into account. Along the, the same lines, I will say that the effects on the number of providers as being affected by these transitions from less stringent to more stringent contractors doesn't look super clean to me from, from looking at the, at the graph. So, you know, again, you have like this like dynamic uh, evidence. The number of providers goes down by 1%, but it seems that it kind of recovers pretty fast after, after three months. The number of single uh, provider firms, it also recovers pretty quickly. So the, the effects are maybe not super strong there, but I wanted to pose to you along the same lines that in a setting in which these healthcare providers don't have pricing power, the setting of Medicare in which prices are determined you know, by, by the federal government, maybe consolidation is also a good thing, right? Like it would seem that, that uh, these uh, single provider firms, maybe they were throughout inefficiently small and, and it is good uh, from, you know, like a, a cost perspective that there are less firms that are taking more advantage of economies of scale. Yeah, that's right. So I think that insofar as prices are administered, which they are in, in my setting, you know, the question of how, whether or not consolidation is a good thing is maybe a little bit uh, different than in settings where prices could respond to changes in consolidation. And so there's a very large literature uh, looking at the consolidation uh, that we've seen in healthcare in the U.S., uh, and generally this uh, consolidation is thought to be sort of a negative thing. On the private side, where prices are not administered, but are sort of negotiated between private insurers and providers, there's pretty good evidence that increased consolidation uh, leads to higher negotiated prices. Now, you bring up that are prices not able to respond, then, you know, there might be sort of these large efficiencies or economies of scale that come from consolidation. Uh, and, you know, in some sense, I'm pointing to one of these. I'm saying that uh, by consolidating into larger practices, uh, that these investment costs are sort of going to be better able to spread out across providers. Uh, and so there are sort of economies of scale coming from the fixed costs of these investments. But as far as other benefits that might come from consolidation, there's very little evidence that they are super large. Uh, you know, the, the hope is that if doctors sort of consolidate into larger practices or become owned by hospitals, that they'd be able to increase the coordination of care across providers and that quality might respond uh, in a really positive way uh, or that other sort of efficiencies would be realized. Uh, and the literature tends to find pretty, pretty weak evidence uh, that this is the case. That is very possible. But let me link this to the other piece of evidence that you mentioned, which is that charges go up. So because you are more aware of the literature, I guess that you may tell me that my interpretation is not correct, but is it possible that charges go up, but not as evidence of upcoding, but instead as evidence of the fact that there was a potential care that providers might have been tempted to give? that would actually be valuable, but that they were not giving because they were anticipating that they were finding it difficult to get reimbursed for them. And then after the investment in, say, electronic health records or some other type of technology uh, goes up as a result of the shock uh, to the contractor, now they think, well, finally, we can justify to ourselves without going out of business, uh, giving this uh, potentially, I guess, not life-saving, but, you know, life-enhancing care that we wanted to give all along. Yeah, so that's right that my interpretation is that pretty much all of the changes that I see are in reporting rather than in actual care uh, being rendered. And I think this makes sense for a few reasons, you know, some of which depend on institutional details and others of which I'm able to provide uh, some supporting evidence of. So on the institutional detail front, most of these sort of claim disputes, claim denials, the back and forth between insurers and providers about whether or not claims are going to be paid, 
These are things that happen sort of behind closed doors and not front of mind for the uh, providers themselves who are making treatment decisions. Uh, these are generally going to be handled by administrative staff uh, called coders, medical coders, uh, who are going to be uh, determining how to translate the care that was rendered into a claim to submit to an insurer and then going back and forth with the insurer to determine whether it's ultimately paid. So the idea that providers would alter the way that their care is presented through these sort of administrative channels without actually altering the care that they themselves render, I think that's very concordant with the way that this process works. Now, empirically, a few things that I'm able to do to sort of uh, support my claim that most of what's happening here in the first order uh, is about uh, representation of, of medical care rather than care itself. Uh, the first is that I see little evidence of uh, health actually changing. So I'm able to look at the overall beneficiary mortality as providers transition between administrators that impose higher and lower administrative burdens. And I see you know, no evidence of, of any changes there. Um, now, of course, that's not a, a perfect measure. Um, so another thing that I want to do is look at uh, cases of care, uh, in particular low value care, where administrators tend to be more varied in their stance toward these procedures. And so there's going to be uh, potentially large differences across administrators in the denial rate, the share of claims that they deny. Um, but there are not close substitutes in terms of how to code for this care without actually changing care. And so what I find is that it uh, appears to be quite difficult to get providers to actually change uh, the care that they're rendering for these low value types of procedures. So looking at, at seven different low value procedures, I find that only for one is there evidence uh, that a, a large increase, a very large increase in the denial rate, much farther increase than we see for most procedures, um, that that leads to any decrease in the utilization of the procedure. So I think that weight of the evidence that I see indicates that there is very little change in the actual care that's rendered, and it's all about the way that the care is reported. So you have what you call an empirical model, which is an adaptation of the theory model that you convert into a system of equations for which you can afterwards estimate the parameters. Why do you need this structural estimation uh, and how does it work? Sure. So like we mentioned earlier, the fact that the denial rate is an equilibrium object is what makes it important uh, to model the way that this denial rate is getting set uh, to understand how providers respond to changes in administrative burden. Uh, this is also important uh, for quantifying sort of the overall cost, both of these transitions, as well as uh, the overall billing costs that are constant regardless of the, uh, of the administrator. Uh, and so in order to quantify these costs, I, I need this empirical model to back out the total level of costs of these uh, billing costs and billing effort that aren't directly observed in my data. And so in order to do this, I use the empirical model to make predictions about how uh, these equilibrium objects will respond to increases or decreases in administrative burden. In particular, how much the denial rate will change, how charges will change, and how the number of active firms will change. And then using indirect inference, I compare the predictions of the model for different values uh, of the parameters to what I actually see in the data. And so choose parameters in order to match these uh, as closely as possible. So this is not a strategic model in that there is only a single, a single agent, which is the healthcare provider. Everything else is parameters. So we have a healthcare provider that is facing an environment that is more or less stringent and is choosing the level of investment to deal with this type of situation. And then there is, after the investment has, chosen, has been chosen, which you don't observe directly in, in the data, you may have proxies for it, but you don't observe directly, then there is like a, a number of, of variables that you actually observe, like for instance, as we said, the claim denial rate, the uh, number of charges, and, and so on, that are going to vary as a result of that. You have essentially like a, you end up with a system of equations with a number of parameters that you want to estimate, a number of variables that come as prediction of these parameters that you can measure empirically. And then essentially this method of moments is playing around okay, with uh, the parameters until you find the set of parameters that give you predictions about this moment that you observe in the data that are as close as possible to the ones that you observe 
Typically, when we run regression, what we are minimizing is the sum of the square residuals. What is it that you are minimizing here in order to get predictions of these moments, of these like observed statistics in the data that are as close as possible to the empirical moments? What are you minimizing here? So here I'm minimizing the, like you mentioned, the distance between the predictions of the model with the parameters that I'm trying to choose and those that I observe, uh, sort of the real data that I observe. And so for each of these moments, comparing the change in equilibrium outcomes to what the model parameters predict that they would be, I'm minimizing the squared distance between the prediction and the observed value in the data. I also weight these differences by how noisy the observation in the data is, such that the empirical sort of observations reduce form estimates uh, that I have for the changes in denials, changes in charges, uh, that those that are more precisely estimated are those that get uh, heavier weight in the structural estimation procedure. You say that the model fits the data very well. I have never read a structural estimation model in which the data, in which the model was not fitting the data very well. <laughs> it, it, it always, you know, it, it doesn't sound so hard because everybody somehow manages to fit it very. What is the measure here that you have the the actual statistic that tells you, wow, I'm not so, you know, like the equivalent of the R squared or the equivalent of the, you know, significance level at the 5% that we will have in reduced estimation, you know, in this type of methodology? Sure. So in my context, one nice thing that I can do is I can sort of compare statistically the predictions of the model for each of the moments uh, to those that I estimate in the reduced form. And there I don't see any significant differences in what the model with the estimated parameters predicts and those that I estimate in the reduced form. And also sort of qualitatively, they are very close together, even not just sort of in Z-score land, but in the numbers seem to be very similar. Uh, Another thing that I can do in my context is that because the structure of the model predicts uh, particular sort of functional forms of relationships between uh, the various uh, things that I do observe, I can check that that's borne out uh, in actuality. So one nice prediction is that simple manipulations of the denial rate and the size of the provider are going to have linear relationships. And so by uh, transforming the data Uh, that I observe to match uh, these predictions, I can see if they are in fact linear and it appears uh, that that largely they are. So I've got sort of a number of pieces of evidence that the predictions of the model are, or the the sort of empirical predictions of the model are quite close to what I'm actually observing data. You also do a, a counterfactual simulation. If I understood it well, that essentially means you have already estimated all these parameters Now, let's change one of the parameters or a couple of the parameters corresponding to uh, legislation that has been proposed or policy prescriptions or whatever. And let's see how the predicted value of all these moments changes. What type of like uh, policies uh, or counterfactual simulations do you study? Sure. So I think maybe the most important one is holding constant the the level of investment and following a change in the administrative burden. So, of course, in the model, providers respond to the level of administrative burden in order to sort of re-optimize and maximize their profits in the face of of this new level of administrative burden. Uh, But one thing that's important to think about is why these administrative burdens might get raised or changed in the first place. Uh, And so in order to understand sort of the mechanical responses that net out the change in administrative burden from the response that it induces on the part of providers, I'm able to hold fixed the level of investment while altering uh, the level of administrative burden in the same way. And so here I find that in contrast uh, to what I find in the reduced form, which is that uh, following an increase in administrative burden that the overall healthcare spending doesn't decrease and if anything increases, I see that were providers not able to respond, that this would not be the case, that the insurer would then pay out much less as they deny more claims. I further see that sort of 
the changes you know, in market structure would be different. There wouldn't be this increase in charges. And so this decomposition uh, helps to shed light on the short run incentives that insurers might have to increase in administrative burdens, while the endogenous provider responses uh, in the long run might make these increase in administrative uh, bad, both for providers in terms of lowering their profits, as well as for uh, insurers in terms of raising the payouts that they ultimately have to make. You talk here of a distinction between uh, short run and long run. But another way to think about this distinction is between backward looking and forward looking. And by this, I mean that in the time span on which your data is based, in the middle of that time span, a new technology, these electronic health records became available that um, not everybody had invested in and that the providers could invest in, you know, in order to uh, maybe along the lines of your model or something, decrease the denial rate, et cetera, et cetera. It is not a given that if the administrative burden was to increase in the future, a corresponding technology will be available to continue this rat race, um, right? So you're talking about the long run in the expectation that, that the, the tools at the disposal of these providers are always there available at a certain price, but that's not necessarily a given, right? So it's possible that these counterfactories are actually telling us the future um, because the technologies do not exist in the future. Sure, yeah, that, that's a perfectly valid way of interpreting it. I mean, I think at, at its core, the question is about a decomposition of the consequences of administrative burden into one that does or does not take into account the endogenous patient or provider responses uh, that were available during my time period. And so the question of what these endogenous responses entail and sort of how dramatically they're able to uh, sort of combat the mechanical response of lowering payments and perhaps even overcome it, you know, that's going to depend on the cost of investment, uh, the types of investment that are available and sort of the returns to these investments uh, in terms of how much they're able to increase charges and avoid denials. Uh, and so that's exactly right that as we move forward, changes in the technologies available to providers and how uh, how these changes to investments uh, in terms of their returns might change, those are going to be very important for understanding how on net administrative burdens are going to affect these equilibrium outcomes. Thank you, Riley, for coming to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Please visit our website, thevisiblehand.uk, for links to any other papers that we may have discussed. Introductory music and logo by Aitana Blanesiso, episode produced by Anderson Tan. <laughs>